Hi, it's Saturday. It's the Saturday show and it's episode 500 or maybe 501. The accounting does get a little bit squishy around what exactly is episode 500. Uh, what exactly do you, is it like Korean birthdays where everyone turns one in the beginning of the year? So they're born and they're one as opposed to U.S., most of the rest of the world. However old they say you are is how many years you've already accomplished. These are really incidental questions to what I'm trying to do here, which is bring you an episode from the vaults and an episode from the week. Now, this week in the news, the UAW strike expanded. The screenwriters and actors strike is ongoing. So I'm going to bring you an interview from 2016. It's when we talked to journalist Stephen Greenhouse. Now, in 2008, he had written The Big Squeeze, Tough Times for the American Worker. And it was still tough times. But things were maybe changing a little bit. This interview is interesting because it works as a time capsule. It took place in December 2016. That's not so long ago. But as you could hear, Greenhouse and I both agreeing that the labor movement was laid low. One barista in Buffalo unionizing her shop does not change all that, but there has been a change in attitudes, or at least elite attitudes. I have, however, yet to see a change on the ground or in the state houses, laws affecting labor unions opening up states as right-to-work states or closed-shop states. So an interesting interview from... Oh, not even seven years ago that you can gauge how far we've come, how far we've yet to go. And then I bring you my spiel from the week about truth, comedy, and Hassan Minaj. Enjoy. So during the campaign, there were a lot of talks about workers, the blue collar, machinists, men who worked with their hands. Precious little talk of the mechanism that would get these good, hardworking, salt of the earth people actual bigger paychecks, or in some cases, paychecks at all. That thing was unions. Where have unions gone in America? as a means of discourse, and also as a solution to political problems. Joining me now is Stephen Greenhouse. He's retired from the New York Times. He was labor and workplace correspondent, but he's still covering the beat. He's working on a book about the future of workers in the U.S. Hello, Mr. Greenhouse. How are you? Great to be here. So did that strike you? Obviously, the Republican is not going to get behind the idea of unions, but did the dearth of actually bringing up unions as a solution to what has been said to be the overweening problem of America that drove the election, did that strike you as somewhat odd? Yes, it struck me somewhat odd, although, you know, Donald Trump really played into, you know, resonated with a lot of, you know, blue collar Americans, especially blue collar whites, because he was, you know, emphasizing their problems of wage stagnation, of the decline of the American dream. He kept talking about how, you know, jobs are going overseas, that free trade pacts were encouraging manufacturing jobs to leave. And as a Republican, you would not expect him to really talk up labor unions, especially because most labor unions were hammering him and opposing him day after day. Unions you know, are far weaker than they were 30 and 50 years ago in the United States. They represent just 11% of workers, one out of nine workers. Uh, and then when John F. Kennedy was president, 
you know, 55 years ago, unions represented one in three workers, and they were much more powerful, much more plugged in politically. They, you know, when they spoke, the nation listened, uh, and they had much more influence in persuading voters in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan and Ohio and, 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 and Missouri on how to vote. And I think one of the one of the reasons Trump won those states is that unions are so much weaker than they used to be. And it used to be the case that you couldn't go against the unions or you had to at least tiptoe it through those states, because even if the majority of voters maybe weren't in a union, they were all connected to a union or they had some union member in their family or it was just seen as a political suicide to have an anti-union stance in Missouri or in Wisconsin, but no more. And I noticed that a lot of the laws in those states have changed. It's not just the economy dictating if unions rise and fall. It's right to work laws. Yes. Yeah, so take a state like Wisconsin, which was used to be one of the most progressive, even leftist states in the nation, the state of the La Follette brothers. In the 1950s, 40 percent, 39 percent of Wisconsin workers belonged to unions. Now it's plunged to just 8 percent. And the decline has been hastened by the famous Republican governor, Scott Walker, who has pushed through legislation, not just right to work legislation, legislation that, that in effect cripples collective bargaining for public sector workers and has caused many you know government employees to quit their unions that really has precipitated this sharp sharp decline in in the number of union members in wisconsin the power of unions and we've seen other states michigan indiana adopt right to work and now with the republican governor in missouri uh it's very likely that missouri is going to enact right to work right to work hurts unions because uh it means that workers and at private sector unionized workplaces no longer have to pay any union dues or union fees. And that causes a lot of workers to say, hey, I can get the union to continue to represent me and bargain for me, but I don't have to pay a cent. So, you know, why pay for the milk when you can get it for free? I also want to mention in that statistic or those statistics that you laid on us with where one of nine people are in a union, if you take into account private sector unions, it's much smaller than that, right? It's just 6.6.7%. Yes. One in one in 16 workers. And it used to be, you know, one, you know more than one in three workers in, in manufacturing, certainly. So it does seem to me that on certain issues, politicians are attached to those issues and the voters feel like your policies caused this situation. I'll give you an example. Hillary Clinton didn't write the 1994 crime bill, but within the African-American community, there are large portions of that community, especially younger people, who blame her and her husband for over-incarceration. They put... A plus B plus C, and they say that your policies led to this situation. And yet when it comes to the state of the working class man, it is so clear that Republican policies have gutted the power of the union, which helped the working class man. And yet there isn't a lot of momentum, uh, at least among those uh, would-be union members to say, oh, to blame the Republicans for that. And I wonder if you have a theory about why. I have several theories, Mike. So, you know, remember... Donald Trump said, I love poorly educated Americans. Yes. And, and unfortunately, I think a lot of Americans aren't educated enough on these issues and don't understand uh, what's happened. And you know, in many states, people learn very little about the history of America's labor unions and how, yes, they are the folks that brought us the weekend. So Bill Clinton and Hillary are repeatedly blamed for NAFTA. NAFTA 
helped lead to an exodus of jobs to Mexico. But people forget that it was George H.W. Bush, the first President Bush, who negotiated NAFTA right before Bill Clinton came into office. And then Clinton trying to be a good bipartisan president and not you know, stomping on the president who preceded him got Congress to pass NAFTA. Uh, Obama wanting to improve relations with, um, with Asia and prevent China from becoming dominant in Asia pushed for the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And you know, so Trump and other Republicans, many, many uh, blue-collar working-class folks, blame Clinton, blame Obama for these trade deals where, you know, while Republicans are probably even more in favor of these trade deals than Clinton and Obama. And also, so we had this horrible Great Recession from, you know, December 2007 to June 2009. It's been very, very hard for the nation to recover from that horrible recession. And I think a lot of voters wrongly blamed it on Obama. And Obama was pushing for economic stimulus and all sorts of things to increase the nation's ability to come out of the recession. And uh, it's the Republicans in Congress that were opposing that. But now when people say, who's to blame for the wage stagnation? Who's to blame for the not so fast uh, economic expansion? They blame Obama rather than the Republicans. And tying this back to unions, again, if unions represented one in three uh, workers rather than one in nine workers, unions would be, uh, you know, much more outspoken and much more listened to in explaining who is really to blame for the wage stagnation, who's really to blame for the slow economic recovery. Well, if I could channel my inner Andy Stern or a union leader, I might say something like, well, one reason that Obama is only representing a country with one in nine instead of one in three are policies that Obama himself favored or didn't favor. Like when he came into office, there was the Employee Free Choice Act. And I knew I have a lot of friends who were in business and they voted for the ones that voted for Obama, liked him on a number of issues. But they said there is one thing. If this Employee Free Choice Act goes through, there's going to be so many more unions unions it's going to be terrible terrible for business and even though he is a set he as a senator sponsored it, it was pretty silent as a president it didn't pass and as a result well i mean there's a reason it didn't pass um we see some of the consequences of that how much are obama policies to blame for there being fewer unions i don't think he deserves much blame on that and i often argue with labor people the employee free choice act would have made it easier not far far easier but easier for unions to, to organize now workers have to engage and vote by secret ballot, usually after a one or two month campaign where employers pressure them very hard not to join the union. The Employee Free Choice Act would say as long as, as soon as a majority, 50.1% of workers sign cards saying they favor a union, presto, you get a union. And employers really don't like that because they say it doesn't give them sufficient opportunity to make the case about why their workplace should not be unionized. So Obama was elected there was like only this very small window when he had a veto-proof majority of six of sixty, so it would have been very very hard for him to get that enacted anyway. And when he was elected, I think he made the rational decision that I have all this political capital right now. What should I do? And he decided to uh, pursue a long-time dream of many unions and many Americans to move towards uh, more universal health coverage. So he passed Obamacare, and after that. He tried turning to enact the Employee Free Choice Act. He didn't push as hard as he might have, but I think he saw that it probably wasn't going to pass anyway. And some people say, and some union people say in retrospect, 
he should have pushed to enact the pro the pro labor bill first, the Employee Free Choice Act, and then pushed uh, to enact Obamacare. And I think Obama made the rational decision that if he had pushed for the Employee Free Choice Act first, he may well have lost. He might well have burned up a lot of political economy, political capital before he was able to enact what he thought and many Americans thought was even more important uh, law that you know went far to establish uh, more universal health coverage for all. Okay, I buy that. I sympathize with the straits Obama was in. And yet, eliminating unions seems to me, does it seem to you, to be much more important to Republicans than preserving unions are to Democrats? Mike, you're absolutely right on that. The Republican coalition is business folks, and they don't like unions, and they want to weaken unions, squash unions, kill unions. And then many conservatives, you know, uh, evangelical conservatives, ideological conservatives, people like Grover Norquist, they see that unions are a pillar of the Democratic Party, and they're happy to weaken, to do what they can to further hobble unions because they know that will help continue, you know, Republican, you know, domination in Congress and various various state legislatures. So they're all gung ho for measures to weaken unions. So as you know, so in Kentucky now, for the first time since the 19th century, uh, the Assembly is in Republican control. So now Kentucky is going to pass a right to work law. So as soon as Republicans get the trifecta and control the Senate, the Assembly, and the governor's mansion in a state, they go right away to enact right to work to weaken weaken unions. Increasingly, the Democrats are realizing that for them to rebound as a party, it's important to help labor unions grow and expand again. Still, you know, even when if unions are stronger, union leaders and unions are not, you know, are not often uh, aggressive enough or smart enough. And remember, you know, three of the nation's largest unions were very early and important backers of Hillary. But I think the unions were shocked, shocked, shocked that Trump won. They were confident that they had they were delivering the Middle West for Hillary. And they were mortified, astounded that Hillary lost in all those states. And in ways, you know, unions are realizing that, hey, we were not as in touch as we should have been with the blue-collar, white working class in in those states. Well, speaking of the industrial Midwest, I'll, uh, this is from Tracy Sharp, who was quoted in the Wall Street Journal. She's the president of the State Policy Network, which is a range of free market think tanks throughout the United States. She points out that in Wisconsin, union membership is down 133,000 since 2010, the year before Scott Walker overhauled the union rules there. So down 133,000, and Donald Trump won by less than 30,000. In Michigan, public union membership, public union membership, is down 34,000 since 2012, the year before Governor Rick Snyder's right-to-work law kicked in. Mr. Trump's margin was 11,000. Even if you're getting your people out, if there aren't as many people, it's not going to work. The 30,000 decline in union membership in, in Michigan, I don't know if, if unions had 30,000 more people, whether that would have closed the 11,000 vote gap. Maybe yes, maybe no. Right, they don't but get every clearly, vote. clearly, if, yeah. if unions were as powerful as they were 30 years ago, Hillary would have easily won won these three key states. So is it too late? Can unions either become smarter politically, hold more sway over Democrats, or actually, I think the key would be to increase their membership. Maybe a fourth key would be convince people who aren't in them that they are the mechanism to address the ills of the uh, blue-collar white working class. Is it too late for unions? Mike, I think in ways it might be too late for unions. Why do I say that? Partly because, you know, 
especially in the private sector, they represent just one in 16 workers, whereas they used to represent like 35%. It's not an easy time, but you look at the fight for 15, which is inarguably the most successful labor effort in terms of mobilizing people in the United States in many years. It's been totally unsuccessful in forming a traditional labor union. And I imagine the fight for 15 could get a majority of workers at 100 McDonald's to vote for a union in the next week if they really wanted, but it's going to be incredibly hard to get McDonald's or its franchisees to agree to a contract. So they're trying to figure out another way to form a union-like labor organization. And one of the big problems that some of these newfangled labor organizations like the Fight 15 face is that they're spending you know, millions of dollars to try to help these workers, but they don't have any dues payments coming in from the workers. So they're trying to lift the workers, but they're not getting any dues payment coming back to finance these innovative union-like advocacy Structures. I'm sounding like a damn professor there, sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. Stephen Greenhouse, for decades, covered labor and the workplace for the New York Times. He's writing a book on the future of workers. Will that book be called The Great Disgruntlement? Uh, I, I'm thinking of calling it Raising Our Voice. But uh, All right. Thank you, Stephen Greenhouse. Telling you, tell you more than I should. <laughs> That's, it's good. Thank you, Stephen. Okay, Mike. Be well. Thanks. And now the spiel. Other than being funny, what is the obligation of the comedian? Is it to shed light, be moral, tell truths, tell the truth? Over the weekend, a New Yorker article by Claire Malone exposed the comic Hassan Minaj as exaggerating and concocting stories that placed him and his family at the center of events in which he wasn't involved and facing attacks which did not actually occur. Minaj was the host of the Netflix show Patriot Act, which used humor to criticize world leaders and U.S. businessmen. He has a stand-up style that emphasizes showmanship and exuberance over, say, pure joke writing. In his latest Netflix special, The King's Jester, Claire Malone found inconsistencies. Still, all his skills were on display. He's handsome. He's charismatic. At four or five times during the last special, he lowered his voice to an emphatic whisper, drawing the crowd in not to get a laugh, but to underline a point. It worked. The audience seemed to love Minaj, not just comedically. He showed photos of his family. But this photo is my favorite. Including he and his wife cradling his newborn daughter. And I'm holding the baby. And Bina's holding me. <laughs> and she goes, Can you believe it? We're finally a family. It had the desired effect, not since the Emmanuel Lewis show Webster. Has a purported comedy been so willing to substitute a laugh track for an awe track? Minaj wants to do something other than inspire laughter. I'm sure he would say, do something more than inspire laughter. He constructed the special with audio-visual elements and visual effects, ambitious camera moves that you won't find in other comedy specials. It veers into memoir and one-man show. 
The through line is Minaj weighing commitment to family versus commitment to causes. Notice I didn't say commitment to the bit. Lots of comedians talk about how they see humor in areas where their wives or husbands or other family members don't, and that itself is a comedic conceit. Minaj guides the audience through his fights with the famous and the infamous on television and at a Time Magazine gala. And he documents his wife's dissatisfaction with him for chasing clout and reveling in the attention his criticisms of, say, Jared Kushner and the Saudis garner. The New Yorker reported that details of each of those fights are inventions. And up until the end, you might forgive Minaj. It's a pretty good ride, especially if you're on board for that sort of thing. And after all, comedians exaggerate for comedic effect, possibly They leave out complicating details. It's comedy. It's not documentary. But by the end of the special, Minaj breaks the trust he has established with the audience and in fact betrays the audience. He tells the story of after trying so hard to start a family and after taking excess satisfaction in the attention he gets for tweaking the famous, he then arrives at his apartment And he asks the doorman for the mail. I go, give me my fan mail, Carlos. He grabs a stack of letters. He hands them to me. I rip it open. I flip it over. And all this white powder falls into the stroller. And it falls on my daughter's shoulder. Her neck, her cheeks. And she's staring at me. And I run upstairs and I tell Bina. And this time I can't lie. He's not remotely playing this for laughs. Minaj throws the comedy car into park because he is making a point, a serious point. He's sharing his lowest moment. He takes us to the hospital where he and his wife wait in agony to see if his baby is going to be harmed. Because he is a compelling performer, the audience is very, very invested. So when the verdict is delivered, there is relief and revelation. Finally, around midnight, nurse comes in and she's holding my daughter but she's with an investigator. And the investigator reaches into his pocket and he pulls out a plastic baggie filled with white powder. He goes, Mr. Minhaj, you're very lucky. This isn't real anthrax, but I've been in this department long enough to know this shit just doesn't come out of nowhere. So I have to ask you something, young man. Earth, have you been antagonizing? The audience gets it. That is what his wife has been saying all along. And Minaj understands. Minaj makes a vow to put his family first, seeing the near horror visited upon them. And none of it happened. He made up the white powder. He made up the emergency room. He made up the investigator who said, I've been around long enough to know that subjects of anthrax attacks have something to answer for. That was maybe a little odd or off. In the article in The New Yorker, Minaj spoke of emotional truths. But this is a clear case of emotional lies. And in case you were wondering if Minaj may, somewhere in the special, make the case for giving him some leeway, here's the near culmination of the King's Jester. Everything here tonight is built on trust. Why do you think I'm performing in this LED skate park? (laughs) I look ridiculous! here is built on trust. You trust me. I trust you. The audience would be right to feel betrayed. 
Minaj tells the New Yorker he has received hate mail and death threats, which I don't disbelieve, but he has elevated his own victim status in the name of cheap drama. He made us care about his journey to parenthood. He got us to coo and oo over his baby. He spun a tale of her life in peril in order to play on the audience's emotions. I suppose some of his fans will forgive him. Some responded to me when I tweeted a few other minor discrepancies I found in the special. They said, come on, it's comedy. But it's not comedy. Minaj wanted it to be more than comedy. In fact, it wound up being a lot less. It's a manipulation. And I don't care because I'm some comedy purist who adheres to a strict taxonomy of what counts as comedy and what doesn't. I'm just judging Hassan Minaj by his own standards. What's truth? What's actually true and what's emotionally true, this act is neither. Corey produces The Gist and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. We will talk to you on Monday for 501, could be 502. We're really trying to get that accounting down.